0: Okay, I'm pleased to be joined by Jack from JFresh Hockey. He does analytics players cards. He's done data viz for the Athletic and Sportsnet. Uh, I stumbled upon him from his newsletter on Substack, and I, I, I still don't know what a Substack is, but I, I'm glad I stumbled on your work, Jack. Uh, you've done some excellent uh, playoff postmortems. How are you doing, Jack? I'm not doing too bad. How about you? Uh, I'm doing excellent. It's uh, It was a drizzly day, but uh, I was able to get to get out and shoot some hoops and now I'm I'm feeling recharged and refreshed to do this podcast. We're going to do some postmortems on here uh going through all the teams that are eliminated and we just watched the Columbus Blue Jackets get eliminated in 5 games by the Tampa Bay Lightning. So I wonder if maybe we could start with them. Columbus, is their window open or is it closed?
1: Uh, I mean, honestly, considering what they did this year and all the factors that they had to deal with in terms of injuries and obviously losing franchise players, you know, Panarin obviously being the main one uh, based on, you know, the quality of goaltending the Jackets got and what Bobrovsky ended up doing in in Florida this year. You know, I, I have a tough time saying that their window is exactly wide open because I think that there are pretty huge steps that they'd have to take to really be like a proper contender and not just kind of a spoiler driving, you know, top seeded teams crazy. But I mean, there is definitely the opportunity that they have that if they can maybe find a way to add a little bit more top end talent to the top of their lineup, maybe get a little bit more scoring that, you know, I think honestly, they're, they're a well-coached team. They were the third best defensive team in hockey this year in terms of, you know, preventing quality chances against, The goaltending held up far better than I think anybody could have fairly expected, especially in the playoffs. So theoretically, you know, if they could get the right top end scorer that doesn't really mess up the rest of what they've been able to do in terms of defense. You know, there is there is an opportunity here for the Jackets to potentially take the next step and go from being kind of a pain in the ass to actually being a team that could compete for a cup.
0: Yeah, we kind of talk, we talk about the team that gets you into the playoffs, and then there's the team that you need to be in the playoffs. And it seems like they're almost the team that you need to be come playoff time, but they don't necessarily have the team that'll get them into the playoffs. You mentioned needing a top line scorer. Uh, Bjorkstrand he controlled play like a legit top line forward and yep. scored like a top line forward this year but he's been absent now in back to back playoffs scoring less than a point per 60 at even strength is that just an aberration can he be their new Panarin uh, wh- where does he fit into the mix for you
1: i don't know i mean be up to these playoffs and you know i'm i'm hesitant to really let such a small sample size screw with my assessment of a player like I've been calling Bjorkstrand the most underrated player in the NHL this year uh, which I, I really think is, is a reasonable thing to say based on the results he's gotten I mean in terms of his two-way play his goal scoring uh, his ability to drive offense like you mentioned I mean I would consider him to be a top-end player and the real thing holding him back has been Tortorella's trust in him which it really seemed like was finally kind of starting to go in the right direction especially in these playoffs where we were actually seeing get like power play minutes and some top line opportunities. And obviously he wasn't really able to necessarily convert those into points on the board. I I was kind of on and off in terms of how impressed I was with him, just kind of watching his, watching him play. Uh, Obviously, you know, the eye test kind of has to take you a decent amount of the way when it comes to the playoffs, just because you don't have the opportunity to look at kind of the models that have been adjusted for certain factors. So some of those underlying numbers can sometimes be a little bit misleading. But, I mean, at least in the regular season, what he has shown us is that he is legitimately one of those top caliber players and he's gotten better every year. I think the the factor for the Jackets is kind of finding a guy who can play essentially what he's been doing on that left wing or, or maybe even at the center position just to strengthen what they have going down the middle. Uh, and maybe also, you know, make their power play a little bit more dangerous and, and be able to kind of put up those points on the board that they'll need to – really take that next step. Essentially, you know, like you said, what Panarin was doing for them.
0: And you mentioned the center position. These playoffs were a bit of a coming out party for Pierre-Luc Dubois. He's only 22. He's only three years into his career. I'm not sure he drives enough offense uh, to be that number one centerman that you really really want but at the same time he's he's right on the cusp both in terms of the offense that he generated and in terms of uh, owning that shot share I wonder if he can't uh, develop into that guy what do you think Jack?
1: Yeah I mean I, I would I would characterize Carely to as the number one center I don't think that it's it's a position where they desperately need to you know, they they like, hypothetically, you know, they didn't need like a John Tavares. Like they don't need to make like that gigantic signing down the middle. But I think that generally they could probably stand to strengthen the position a little bit so they don't have to rely so much on guys like Wenberg and Jenner. If they could find a guy to kind of help carry the load with Dubois down the middle, then that would go a long way. But I think really what it comes down to is, you know, you need a little bit more than you have in terms of weapons. And I think the extent to which the Jackets kind of got buried against both the Lightning and the Leafs, who are two kind of big offensive teams. And I know that obviously, you know, they were able to withstand that against the Leafs, not so much against the Lightning. Uh, But I I think being able to bring in more guys who are able to contribute on the offensive side, as opposed to just kind of locking things down on the defensive side would really go a long way for uh, for the Jackets and, and help them take that next step to actually be a team that we talk about as a cup contender.
0: Yeah, so if we look at the most recent Stanley Cup finals, the Bruins and the Blues both had elite shutdown number one centers in Bergeron and O'Reilly, Selkie types. And maybe Dubois fits more into that type of role. And then if they had a Shen slash Krejci backing them up a little bit more of of a pure offensive guy, uh, that could be the dynamic mix that they need.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. You know, I don't think Dubois, at least in terms of his regular season performance, I don't think that he is really at the level of of where you'd say, you know, Bergeon and O'Reilly fall, especially kind of in terms of defensive play. I think both of those guys are people you can realistically talk as being kind of in the Sulky conversation, you know, for real. Like you were talking about people who like deserve to be in the Sulky conversation as opposed to just kind of reputation calls. You know, I don't think Dubois has really fully entered himself in that conversation yet, even if his reputation is is solid. But, uh, I, you know, I mean, he's got plenty of time. He's still a kid. Like, this is a guy who's, you know, Austin Matthews' age. You know, he's Jesse puglia age if you really want to rub salt in the wound. So, you know, I, I think he still has room for growth. And, and if they can solidify things behind him with a smart acquisition or two, then, you know, theoretically they could put it together.
0: That pull you every shot really hurts me, and uh, I, I respect you immensely for for firing it off so quickly into the pod. Um, yeah, you know, I did. I didn't mean to intimate that Dubois was at, at that level yet, but it, it seems like he could trend that way. Especially, it's quite possible he hasn't even added his uh, quote unquote man strength yet. So if if he fills out even further that could be uh that could be something uh they have a decision to make on him this summer as he is a restricted free agent what type of contract would you be trying to sign with him would you go the full meal eight years man
1: that's that's a good question because he's you wonder because after the playoffs that he's had i mean you'd feel pretty good about having him kind of you know, sorry, I'm saying like, if you're, if you're, if you're like pure Luke Dubois agent, you'd be pretty happy with uh, the playoffs that he just had in terms of, you know, what he's going to be able to bring to the negotiating table. I'd be kind of hesitant to put him at that real kind of top and center money. And I really doubt that that's something that he could realistically expect to get. But you know, if he's looking for something pretty reasonable, kind of in that, you know, six to $7 million range, especially in a flat cap environment, you know, I think that that's something reasonable that the Jackets could do. And, I mean, they certainly have the cap flexibility right now to uh, to get something like that done. So, yeah, I mean, the full eight years is obviously a big risk, but considering his age and if they can do that and kind of keep the number down, you know, this is a guy who, realistically speaking, is probably going to be their number one center for the next little while. So, if you can get it at a reasonable hit, then you got the flexibility to do it. And uh, I don't think anybody would begrudge and getting that done
0: in my sense is if they're going to continue to be the type of team that is one of the elite defensive teams then they're never going to completely bottom out so they're not going to pick as high in the draft as they did when they picked Dubois so they, you know they they've kind of made their bed with him as their number one guy so they almost have to make the bet like he is going to be that guy and so by making that bet go the full 8 years i'd go as far as eight years at the Ryan Johansson number 8 million and really bet that he fills that. And while it's going to be basically 10% of the cap for the foreseeable future until they can get fans in the stands again, at the same time, that's probably what it would take to get him locked up for the long term. And after they lost 30 million worth of talent this past summer, I, I think there's got to be some impetus to try to keep these players around. It's, they're they're not far off from having to make decisions on some of their top young defensemen.
1: Yeah, that's going to be the real, the real kicker is when, is when, you know, Jones and, you know, I don't know how many years Wierenski has left, but that's going to be the real one where they're going to have to shell out and they're going to have to, you know, really prep things for that. Because at that point, you know, I think it's probably fair to assume that by the time the Jones contract ends, he's going to have at least a Norris nomination under his belt, you know, probably a win, you know, and there's a, a debate to be had over whether it's going to end up being a deserved win or not. I know that I come in the the decided minority when it comes to my opinion of Seth Jones, but, you know, realistically speaking, this is a guy who has a top five reputation. You're going to have to pay top five money by the time that contract comes up, that could be upwards of 10 to 11 million bucks. So they're going to have some big decisions to make in the future. And I guess the question that they have to ask themselves is whether they're willing to lock in, Dubois, and, and like you said, kind of avoid having that whole Panarin situation come up again. You know, kind of get the fans on board, show them that they're sticking to the core and that they're going to keep trying to compete. And I feel like locking up Dubois would
0: definitely do that. Mm-hmm. And so both Jones and Wierenski are hitting free agency again in two seasons' time. Wierenski will still be an RFA, but he's also got that huge qualifying number built into his contract. And Jones will be hitting unrestricted free agency at 27, at which point he's going to be looking for at least Yossi money, if not more. Yeah. I I take it you wouldn't give him that type of contract. Uh,
1: I wouldn't. He's, he's absolutely going to get
0: it, no matter
1: what. I mean, a, a 27-year-old... You know, especially right handed defensemen, since that obviously seems to be at a massive premium. But I mean, that's every team's dream is to get a Seth Jones defenseman. I mean, like, that's actually what Kyle Dubas said like a couple weeks ago is that, you know, your team, like, you can't trade for like a Seth Jones, you have to draft one. And 31 or I guess 32 teams will have the opportunity to just add one in free agency. So the bidding war could really get out of control. And theoretically, we could be talking about that highest state defenseman in NHL history in a couple years so
0: yeah you know you you mentioned jones and the leafs and the inability to to trade for that kind of guy but jones was traded for and i wonder if if he isn't that guy and i think that the blue jackets think that he is that guy but hypothetically if they determined that he's not that guy there's no better time than now to sell high on that guy, and what could you get for him in return? Oh, they could get
1: anything for him. I, I Honestly, I mean, they, they wouldn't ever want to. I mean, the, the Jaguars clearly think that he's the best defenseman in the league. I think there's a lot of people who would tell you that he's the best defenseman in the league or a top five or, or what have you. Uh, they're going to keep him as long as they possibly can. If they wanted to trade him, I really think that he's one of those players that just could get an absolute mountain in return, especially in a flat cap situation where a $5.4 million defenseman of his stature is probably the biggest possible asset you could ask for.
0: Yeah, I'm just trying to think of, there There really aren't that many examples of this type of player being moved. We've seen, we saw the Jones-Johansson deal, and it could be worse, you could end up, I'll sewer the Oilers again, you can end up one for one in Hall for Larson and uh, not coming out ahead. So it seems like they both kind of trade slightly flawed, but ultimately very, very talented young players for each other. And I just wonder if there couldn't be a match maybe for a team like the Leafs that are desperate for that type of player.
1: Oh, I mean, if, if, if Columbus came to Toronto and said, for whatever reason, we're willing to trade Seth Jones, I mean, the price tag would start with Marner and probably not end for a little while after that. Like, I feel like that's how highly he's valued across the league. Like, you know, I, I theoretically, like, for the Oilers, you know, like, you try to think about what the Oilers could give up and you really can't actually think of anything that, they like, they would even have in the system that would approach the value that he would come in. I mean, you know, even the – like, if the Rangers were training for him, like, the first overall pick might even be in the conversation. Like, That is how effusively praised, I think, Jones has become, especially after this playoff round. Like, I think he's had a pretty high reputation for a while, uh, and even some have considered him to be kind of in that top ten or top five range, you know, throughout the season. But I feel like his performance in that first round against Toronto has just blasted him up into the stratosphere in terms of what his reputation is around the league and around, you know, probably managers and scouts as well. So, you know, that's the kind of conversation it would be.
0: Can we dig into what makes him maybe not the guy that everyone thinks that he is?
1: Sure. So I
0: uh, wrote about this a couple months
1: ago, kind of before the playoffs really kind of bumped up his reputation even more. Uh, And I I wrote it kind of in collaboration with the guy, uh, Jack Hahn, who was the, he was an assistant coach with the Toronto Marlies. He worked in the Leafs front office for a while. Uh, He comes from kind of more of a, nuts and bolts, like X's and O's, uh, player development standpoint, which means that he has kind of an eye, you know, not only for what you'd call like eye test analysis, but also more technical aspects of players' games, you know, like fundamental things in terms of their stick work, their skating, things like that. And so basically the, the long and the short on Jones is that his numbers, like his, his underlying numbers, his analytics, his ability to drive scoring chances, uh, offensively and prevent them against you know making life easier for his goalie they just don't line up with his reputation they're kind of more in line with what you'd say kind of an average or you know middle pairing defenseman uh, than the superstar that he's portrayed as and generally speaking guys who have that superstar reputation it tends to be reflected in a couple aspects of their game like Yosi has that incredible offensive impact you know he has pretty strong defensive numbers as well John Carlson has a incredible offensive impact his defensive numbers are pretty poor uh, but in Jones's case he's really just kind of average at both ends of the ice which is really surprising considering considering his reputation uh, but also considering kind of what you see when you watch him because you know I watched all those games against the Leafs I watched a bunch of the games against the Lightning you know I watched him play during the season I watched him play against my team you know I have about the same eye test experience with Jones that anybody else does and that's you know what you see is this incredibly active, incredibly skilled, physically gifted defenseman who's constantly in the play. He's, you know, hounding players of the puck in the defensive end, he's moving the puck up, he's leading the rush, he's doing all these things that make him look like an elite defenseman. But for whatever reason, if you actually kind of break it down in terms of his his impact on driving play either way, it's just not there. And so essentially what I did in that article that I wrote was kind of go into you know, first go into what the numbers are, just kind of make that case and then kind of watch a couple of games and try to get a sense for it. And the sense that I got and, and Jack Hahn and actually Dom Lushijan and uh, Scott Wheeler of The Athletic uh, wrote a great video breakdown of this a couple of weeks ago is that the things that Joe does well are incredibly visible. He's a great transition passer. Uh, he leads the rush. He's confident with the puck. He is just active as heck. Like he does everything in the defensive zone. He's almost always on the puck in the offensive zone. He's cycling. He's doing all this stuff. Uh, But there are certain deficiencies in his game that are stopping that from actually translating into on-ice results. So in the defensive zone, Jack Hahn noticed some issues with his pivoting and his backwards skating that was leading to him getting beat quite a bit uh, when the opposition is carrying the puck into his zone. So you see a lot of instances where he gives up the blue line, players are able to get in behind him, and then the jackets end up kind of stuck in their end. Uh, In the offensive zone, he has a tendency to overshoot, uh, which leads to a lot of shots getting blocked, You know, harmless chances, and then the opposition's able to take it the other way. And these things, to the eye, look relatively insignificant compared to all the incredible things that he's doing with the puck. But in aggregate, they add up to mean that he's not having the impact on the ice that you maybe think that he does from the eye test. And so that's kind of my overall position on Jones, is that he's this incredibly talented defenseman, it was really fun to watch, really visible, really physically gifted, but maybe in terms of what he's actually productively doing on the ice doesn't quite have the impact that you might think just from watching the games. So that, that's my take, which is a minority opinion.
0: For sure, because everything that you see Jones do does look like it's fantastic. I wonder if this isn't the case where The best defensemen are kind of like, that. that's a Milford man, to take the arrested development phrase, where you're neither seen nor heard. You just, nothing ever happens, and that's ultimately the best defenseman. Yeah, well,
1: so that's not necessarily the case in terms of all defensemen, but definitely for defensive defensemen, you would say that. So, like, when you're talking about, because I think most people would consider Jones to be one of the best defensive defensemen in the league. And in terms of the eye test, the reason that you would say that is because you know, like let's say the Leafs series, when Marner and Matthews and Tavares were in the zone, you always saw, you know, Jones hounding them, like he was running around behind them, cross-checking them in the back, getting sticks in, just driving them nuts, uh, and so you were noticing him defensively, but usually when you're talking about these great defensive defensemen, it's the guys who are kind of doing the smaller things, like, you know, breaking up plays of the line, keeping guys to the outside, you know, they're not necessarily as visible, like you're, we're talking like your, your Jonas Brodines, your John Marino's uh, a couple years ago would have been Vlasic. You know, these guys who kind of do fit that Milford man uh, description of neither being seen nor heard, uh, you know, those are the guys who actually might be more valuable defensively than a guy who you constantly see running around and in the process of running around might be getting himself out of position or allowing a team to keep a cycle against them.
0: Yeah, and I wonder if it isn't a little bit of, reverse gravity like if on offense Ovechkin has supreme gravity he pulls defenders towards him because his shot is so amazing you would think that very strong defensive defensemen would have almost negative gravity like you're not going at that guy you're going out of your way to go at other players and so that involves these other players because they're more gettable.
1: Yeah well it's interesting because there was a point that you know some Jackets fans were making to me that had to do with uh, Wierenski, you know, saying, well, you know, you can't really judge Jones's numbers because he plays so much with Wierenski. And Wierenski is the one who's giving up those defensive chances. But then you see Wierenski kind of play with other players, you know, for instance, when Jones got hurt and his numbers are staying pretty much steady. You know, he's playing with Marcus Nudevara and they're pretty much the same as they were with Jones. So I don't know if that necessarily stands up because I I think that maybe, you know, perhaps like Wierenski's, is a little bit worse in the defensive zone. And I think that that's probably fair to say. Uh, but I think that potentially there are things that Waranski provides Jones in terms of his ability to keep the puck going offensively, get the puck out of the zone, things like that, that are really benefiting Jones's defensive stats, but just not in a way that the eye tests would register.
0: That's, that's so interesting. Um, we'll move on to the Toronto Maple Leafs, the team that, Columbus was able to beat. Is their window open or closed? I think it's open.
1: I I don't think it's, you know, it's not maybe as enthusiastically open as we might thought it would have been uh, by 2020, but I think they still have uh, the ability to win a championship in the next couple of years, you know, about as well as, you know, maybe five to 10 teams in the NHL could say that they do.
0: Yeah, I think the question with the Leafs is a little bit is, hockey a strong link game or is it a weak link game because certainly they have the strong links but we saw like they had to put together a 33 million dollar line just to break through the Blue Jackets defense yeah well
1: I mean so the real question for me when it comes to the Leafs isn't necessarily whether they can put together you know whether the top line of their or top end of their lineup can be good enough to make up for the bottom end I think the real question and the real challenge for, for Kyle Dubas especially is making sure that the bottom end is worth much more than you're paying them. And there are areas where he's been really good with that. And there have been areas where he's been really bad at that because, you know, the Leafs, you know, it's a Toronto team. They have piles and piles of money and they've used it pretty well in terms of being able to build up a strong organization, build up the Marlies to be good, build up their scouting staff to be about as good as you could expect a Toronto team with all those resources to be and they have done a good job of kind of following the Pittsburgh model of being creating kind of a factory of bottom six entry-level contract players that you can just kind of rely on like you know like your Engvall's you know Mikheyev's uh, you know Robertson coming in now you know these are guys that the team is able to identify in some cases were able to use their development resources to improve and as a result, you know, those guys aren't really weak links as, as you would normally consider it the bottom six of a top-heavy team to be. The real question for me is whether they're able to identify those guys who are kind of in the middle, like, you know, Tyson Berry playing on the second pair, like just or not Justin Hull, uh Cody Cece playing on the top pair. You know, those are the real weak links in, in my opinion. And I think Dubas' inability to properly address the gaping hole on the right side of the defense. You know, this isn't just an issue for the eye test. This is also an analytical issue as well, where, you know, the guys who we brought in, CeCe and Barry, to fill in those kind of top four roles on that defense on the right side. You know, they were bad acquisitions at the time, and obviously we know that they look really bad. So the real weak link for me with the Leafs isn't at the bottom of the forward lineup. I would say it really comes down to figuring out what the hell you're doing with that defense.
0: Yeah, so one of my major questions was, do they have a championship defense core? And it seems like you think that they don't. But I mean, the Penguins won a cup with a Ron Hainsey, Brian Dumoulin top pair. So I don't know, was that just a, a complete aberration because of the sheer top line talent and the fact that they basically became the the, the league's best Ropadoop team? And we've kind of seen that Ropadoop can work for you in the playoffs or do the Leafs even have a willingness to turn themselves into that sort of team to take advantage or to make up for the fact that they maybe won't have a really strong defense?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that it comes down to with that Penguins team at least, and you know, this has been a topic that constantly comes up among Penguins fans who want to trade Chris Letang. uh, But, you know, you can't count on 2017 happening again. You know, that Penguins team got, Shelled, especially by the Capitals in uh, in the second round, uh, you know, they, they were not nearly as strong a team in terms of their underlying numbers as they were in 2016. And the reason for that was because they couldn't really break the puck out of the defensive zone very well. They managed to make it work because, as you mentioned, they had great scorers. They had excellent goaltending throughout those playoffs. But it really isn't a model that you can look to replicate, uh, even though the Capitals were then able to do it the next year, again, on the strength of their scoring and, and Braden Holpe. So when it really comes down to it, the question is, do you want to have to rely on your scores, you know, putting everything in the net and your goaltender to keep everything out. And really everything kind of has to come together for that to happen. And if the Leafs want to rely on that, you know, they had a pretty good indication in this series why sometimes that doesn't work out where they shot, you know, what, 2.5% at five on five and and their goaltending obviously didn't necessarily hold up as well as they wanted to. So I, I really think, that the Leafs could put together a team that wouldn't have to play that rope dope style. The question is just about player identification, figuring out who you actually want to be playing those roles and, and being able to assemble a team where the weak links really aren't so weak as, as they have been in the past.
0: It doesn't having four guys account for literally half their cap, just make that so much more challenging. Like again, the Pittsburgh example, they won the cup with, Crosby, Malkin, Latang, and Kessel accounting for 45%. If we got rid of that extra handful of percent, you'd be looking at shaving two and a half million off of each of uh, their big guns contracts, and suddenly you've got room for to spend up a little bit on some of those mid-tier contracts, or you can add one more seven million dollar guy to their cap and that could be the number one defenseman that they're searching for so is it just too much of a high wire act uh trying to thread the needle and, and identify those undervalued players to build a championship defense when you've got so much soaked up in four players
1: yeah well the real issue when it comes to having that much money tied up for the Leafs at least is that when you want to shake things up or when you want to really start getting some turnover around the lineup you really don't have the flexibility to do it because, you know, there's a couple expendable players who the Leafs are paying next year uh, who we might end up talking about in terms of guys they could look to move. But after that, you know, if they're looking to shake things up, you start getting into that big four territory. And, you know, that's a, a huge decision, which obviously the Penguins never really found themselves having to make. You know, when it comes to the question of can a team win the Stanley Cup with four guys making, you know, around 40 million bucks, you know, we, I guess we, you know, we can't say with confidence that they can't, it's just obviously a heck of a lot harder. And I think that there's a not negligible chance that a couple of years down the line, we're going to look at that John Tavares signing as maybe being something that started the Leafs on a path that ended up being their downfall, you know, which, which at the time seemed a little bit insane to, uh, to think, but, you know, if you're looking at their, their cap payroll, you look at John DeVere's age, you know, it's not going to get any smaller. And uh, there's a real chance that when they are kind of trying to cobble together a defense, especially when it comes down to making a decision on Morgan Riley, you know, there could be some really tough decisions ahead that may
0: not necessarily have had to be made. Yeah. So they've only got four and a half million in cap space this summer. Who gets the ax to create some space for them and rebuild maybe half a defense core?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so the first guy for me is, uh, is Casper Kapanen uh, who was not good this year. Uh, I think is a perfect example of that kind of all tools, no toolbox kind of player who has really flashy physical attributes, especially his speed. Uh, He has shown flashes of skill as well and and a little bit of scoring. Uh, And I think that there's a, would probably be a pretty good market for him around the league considering he comes at a pretty reasonable price tag. I think his reputation is pretty high as a former first-round pick. He's had a couple of those kind of big, high-profile playoff moments that uh, that people tend to like. Uh, I think that he's a guy who they'd be able to move pretty easily without it being a cap dump. You know, I think that there are guys, teams like the Oilers or maybe even the Penguins who might identify him as someone to shake things up a little bit in their top six. He's the first guy that I would move because I think that they could actually probably get some surplus value for him as opposed to what you would think of in terms of, oh, you're setting cap, you have to pay a little bit, or you don't get the return that you wanted. After that, things get a little tougher. I think maybe Andreas Janssen is somebody they could look at, but if they can make it work over the summer, it might be better off for them to kind of let him play next season, get his value up a bit, because obviously, you know, he didn't play particularly, or he didn't play that much this year. I don't think they really got everything they wanted out of him, especially in the playoffs, so... If they can put him on kind of that second line with uh, Tavares and Marner, Tavares and Nylander, get him some points, they might be able to get a bit better return for him. After that, I think it really just comes down to not retaining Barry, not retaining CeCe, and uh, finding some options who can at least kind of plug in and and play some minutes in the meantime while they kind of figure everything out. You know, I've heard Bradco Cogutas talked about as somebody who a lot of people think they're going to acquire. He's a guy who has... In the past, had surprisingly strong analytics. I think I know that he kind of, you know, in in your head, he kind of fits the Roman Polak, you know, profile of just kind of the big dumb goon defenseman who gets suspended every so often. But his uh, his defensive numbers have actually been pretty strong in the
0: past. Gudas, his. His numbers are fairly impressive, although he wasn't that good this year for the capital. So I wonder if he's kind of hit the cliff and if targeting that type of guy doesn't end up turning into a pullout kind of guy. But we're at the point where beggars can't be choosers when you're trying to thread the needle and and put together a, a defense corps on a shoestring budget. So I wonder, if I guess, I guess the plus side of this being a flat cap situation is that we might end up at a point where there's a whole bunch of veterans that have to sign for basically the veteran minimum, and it's yeah. going to be up to the teams to sell this idea of we can win, come to us and play on the minimum.
1: Yeah, no, and, and the Leafs are well positioned to bid well for those kinds of players. I mean, even in terms of you know, even if it's not necessarily winning that they're super concerned about, I mean, the Leafs have always been pretty reliable at being able to bring in guys on league min contracts or $1 million contracts. And, I mean, look, this is, you know, this was supposed to be the thing that Dubas is good at. You know, he's supposed to be like the money ball GM who can identify players at a low cost who are going to fit in well. You know, now now is really the time. He had a little bit of breathing room last summer where he was able to, you know, do the CC thing for 4.5 and bring in Barry at, you know, at 2.75 or whatever, you know, if there were, ever was a time where you need to get an edge on the opposition and figure out who's being undervalued and who has great numbers, but maybe doesn't look too good to conventional eye tests and is going to get less money than he deserves. I mean, you know, now is the time to to really get that done. So it will be interesting to see who he decides to bring in and, and what that says about kind of what the Leafs value uh, moving forward.
0: Yeah, And you mentioned Kapanen as a likely candidate to go. I think he's he'd be the guy they least likely want to move. But when you're in this type of situation, you almost have to move the player that you don't want to move because that's the player that actually has value and you're going to be able to get yeah. something back. Yeah. Well, I mean, just the the wing is such a an over like a,
1: an organizational position of strength as well, where you have like the Marleys have shown that they are capable of producing just a conveyor belt of strong NHL caliber wingers. So, if there was ever a position of strength, it would be, you know, the one that has Casper Kapanen in it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I I do wonder, can we get eleven million dollar a year Mitch Marner? To turn a third line center into a perfectly like a, a perfectly adequate uh, second line center, and then you could you could load up one of your top lines and, and attack them.
1: Well, I guess they might have to find out. honestly, you know I, in, in my opinion, based on what I saw in the leaf series and what I you know what the underlying numbers said about the leaf series, you know I, I, I really do not think that they're going to have to long term, Load up that top line pretty regularly, I really think that if you look at how you know the play driving went in that Columbus series, you know, how the games went, I think what Sheldon Keith was coaching against was not being completely shut down in terms of play. I think he was dealing with just not being able to get a friggin shot in, you know, like they he was trying to light a spark, trying to get some pucks into the net. and I don't think the Leafs are gonna have to deal with like a nine seven five goalie. At you know, for an extended period of time, you know, maybe ever for the remainder of uh, of when this team is is together. I mean, they basically faced off against like the best possible playoff goaltending that you could possibly face. So when it really comes down to it, I think that a lot of the issues that maybe seem to come to the fore in that brief five game series against the Jackets are maybe the kind of thing that once everybody can kind of catch their breath a little bit from maybe back up and maybe kind of take a closer look at. You know, while it does indicate areas where the team needs to be improved, especially defensively, you know, I think that there is something to be said for maybe respecting that in a five game series, things can go awry and percentages can bite you in the ass. And and maybe there are certain lessons that you can take, but there are also lessons that you maybe
0: shouldn't overcorrect for. Yeah, I wonder if people just aren't at their wits' end with this team every single season running into getting right to the brink and just not being able to get over the hump, but what what essentially amounts to a, a series of weighted coin flips where they're losing them four to three. Like it's, it, it seems crazy to think that this could happen to them four years in a row in the playoffs. And yet here we are. So I take it that this isn't necessarily their come to Jesus moment, the same way that getting swept by the blue jackets was for the lightning last season.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, an unfortunate thing for the Leafs is that they really don't have the flexibility for this to be like a come-to-Jesus moment. Like, I think the Lightning pretty pointedly loaded up on, you know, Barclay Goodrow and Blake Coleman and and kind of did all this stuff to, to address what they had thought were their shortcomings in terms of, you know, forechecking and, and stuff like that to, to deal with what the Jackets were putting up. You know, I don't know if the Leafs really have the flexibility to be able to bring in that kind of like top and bottom six talent. You know, I'm actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they don't. But I think in terms of a come to Jesus, hopefully it maybe gave some pause to Dubas and Keith about how they're choosing to deploy their defense, the kinds of maybe stats and attributes that they're valuing when constructing the defense. you know, you heard Dubas talking about how CC's underlying numbers are actually you know if you if we only had access to the to the data that he has, we would see that CC is actually really good defensively, and I think Andrew Berkshire did a good piece where he Used some of that proprietary data to show exactly what he was talking about. And, you know, it did essentially say that CC isn't too bad defensively. He's good at preventing zone entries and, you know, recovering pucks along the boards and stuff like that. But the stuff that he's really bad at is handling the puck in any capacity whatsoever, which when you're going to play him on your top pairing, which, you know, on a team that relies on the cycle for a lot of their offense, you know, that's going to be an issue. And I think that, uh, maybe taking a bit of a more holistic approach to evaluating players rather than kind of targeting attributes that you'd like to add to your team, like, you know, transitioning the puck in the case of Barry, you know, that's the kind of thing that they're going to have to look a little bit more carefully at. And maybe in that sense, this season and how things went could be a little bit of a corrective and, and make them maybe rethink the way that they are choosing to construct their team.
0: Well, and if CC's so great at all these microstats, why does it always result in his team losing the goal battle? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's
1: exactly it. Like, you know, if you have a guy, and I, I've kind of always said this about people who rely on microstats, I mean, too, to, I guess you could theoretically even come back to Steph Jones. Jones is always a guy who's been extremely good in terms of his microstats because, you know, as I said, he's super active. He's also really good in transition. And those are the kind of attributes that microstats really celebrate, which is why, for example, Tyson Berry had poor overall analytics the past couple of years, but had really good microstats quote unquote, because his transition play was so good. You know, this is the kind of thing where you have to keep your eye out for those players who maybe rack up microstats or look pretty good in some areas of the game, but the overall impact that they're having is negative. And I think that that was the case of the, uh, the right-handed acquisitions that, uh, that dupe was made last season.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the micro stats, they serve a purpose. If you've got a a very clear hole in your lineup, then they can tell you what this player is good at, what they're not good at, and whether they can maybe fill that hole. But if the if the end result isn't adding up for you, ultimately it's, it's goals against versus goals scored. And if that's, if you're coming out on the negative end, then the micro stats don't mean jack shit.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I've, I've always thought that the microstats are a really good way of kind of quantifying the eye test, you know, taking like what you just say generally from the eye test and making it so that you could compare players, you know, on different teams or on different roles. But when it comes to actually kind of figuring out who is, you know, better than who and who's, you know, maybe preferable to have in your lineup than who, you know, generally you'd want to look at the macro level impacts in that case because they might uh, give you a little bit more clarity on what exactly the microstats and, and your eye test, as
0: well are missing for sure. Uh, Moving on from the Leafs, uh, the Winnipeg Jets, they were one of the fastest teams out of this year's playoffs, largely in part to, to some unfortunate injuries. Is their championship window open or is it closed?
1: I got to say, I think it's, I think it's closed. I, I, unless some things dramatically change in the very short term, You know, I think that this is a team that is more likely to be on the bottom end of the league than uh, than competing for the cup over the next five years or so, which is it's shocking because, I mean, as recently as two seasons ago, this is a team that was supposed to be like the next lightning in terms of their ability to compete for the cup for a full decade. And suddenly that's kind of all fallen apart. And and it's kind of hard to see a road ahead that leads them, you know, back into light and maybe back into the last couple rounds of the playoffs.
0: Yeah, it's amazing their, how short that window was, it, it, if it is indeed closed. They lost so much talent from that 2018 conference finalist team, and everyone who came out of those playoffs thinks that they had maybe the best team and that they faced the other best team in the Nashville Predators and those teams just punch themselves out and then suddenly you end up with a Vegas-Washington Cup final that no one would have predicted and Washington wins the Cup because the two best teams played in round two. Uh, great playoff format, NHL. But uh, looking at the talent, they've got, they lost Dustin Bufflin, Toby Enstrom, Jacob Truba, Tyler Myers and Ben Chirot from their defense. And then Paul Stastny, Yoel Armia, Brian Little effectively, if, uh, if he can never come back, and Brandon Tanev, that's nine regulars. That's half of a starting lineup. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, he, here's the thing I will say about the Jets, because I feel like people get really down on them for kind of what they did last summer and and point, kind of draw a straight line from decisions they made to where they are now. You know, strictly speaking, they are probably better off than they would be if they had kept, you know, re-signed, whatever, Jacob Truba, Tyler Myers, and Ben Sherratt. You know, I think all three of those guys ended up getting pretty dramatically overpaid, uh, pretty dramatically overplayed as well. Uh, and I honestly think the Jets would probably be, you know, like, I'd probably be more negative about the Jets moving forward if they had kept any one of those players, just based specifically on how they performed this year. At the same time, I think that a big issue for the Jets, first of all, is that they just weren't able to replace any of them. And the decisions that they made in terms of constructing their defensive group were just horrible. Like, they, theoretically, you can see a way that you can cobble together a half defense, you know, from whole cloth, especially if you have a little bit of cap flexibility. And they just did none of it. Like, they were putting out AHLers who were not ready to play They had Lucas Pisa, Batetto, like all these guys who deserve to be nowhere near an NHL lineup were playing pretty significant minutes for them. They had kind of a top pair that was probably not ready to be a top pair with uh, uh, Neil Pionk, who they like they deployed Neil Pionk as a number one defenseman this year. And all things considered, he did far better than I would have expected. But I mean, if you're deploying Neil Pionk as your number one defenseman, you're going to be in trouble. I think a, a kind of an understated issue with that team isn't necessarily in who they lost. It's just the the drop-off in the performance of the guys who were kind of the young core, uh, you know, or, I mean, the, the old core as well. I mean, you can obviously point to the, the decline of guys like uh, Cahoe and, uh, and Lowry and, you know, the guys who are kind of the analytic darling bottom sixers have, have dramatically fallen off in the past couple of years. You know, guys like Mark Shifley have seen their – defensive play, fall apart. Uh, Blake Wheeler is not the player that he used to be, especially in in terms of five-on-five play, at least, you know, and these are kind of the cornerstone players, and suddenly you're looking at a team that has huge holes in their lineup, but also huge kind of internal issues in terms of how those players who were the cornerstones of the franchise are actually playing nowadays, which uh, is never good news if you're trying to compete.
0: Yeah, you know, you can look at like war charts and lineups and stuff like that, and there's always like the the talk of replacement level player. It turns out the experiment of turning your entire defense into replacement level player not great. Although Connor Hellebuck did a, a fantastic job of bailing that group out.
1: Yeah, like I mean, that's the thing. It's like Connor Hellebuck did comprehensively bail the group out. He bailed the defenseman out. He bailed the forwards who were poor defensively out as well. You know, he was the best goalie in the league. He's he, would, he was my pick for the MVP. Like, that's how good I think that he was. And when it comes down to it, like, you cannot rely on a goalie to do that again. Like, even for, like, another year. Like, goaltending is just so random. And I feel like sometimes people tend to get it in their heads that they can, you know, they, they think of goalies like they think of, like, skaters. Like, think, okay, he's an elite goalie, which means we can rely on him to play elite hockey for the foreseeable future. But that's just not how it works. Like, you you very, very rarely see a goalie repeat a performance for even one more year than Connor Hellebuck did. Like, I think the most recent one is, like, Bobrovsky in 17 and 18 was able to put up, you know, elite numbers two years in a row. And that's kind of it in the past couple of years. So, like, the, the Jets have to bet on Hellebuck not being the goalie that he was this year and maybe settling into more of kind of a top 10, you know, he might even like fall off entirely. He might just have an off year, and in that case, like the wheels are going to absolutely fall off the bus, and the Jets could legitimately be in the lottery next year. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's that's going ahead.
0: That's where I was projecting them this year because Hellebuck had kind of fallen off a year ago, and didn't yeah. didn't realize that he was going to bounce back. Uh, I'm a big fantasy hockey guy, so I've noticed that like no goalie ever sustains that elite level fantasy hockey type performance for more than three years. So you just, you just don't get it out of them. And usually you don't even get it, you know, more than a couple of years in a row. So you, uh, yeah, I'm with you that they can't count on them in terms of Hellebuck for the MVP. You just, you brought up something that uh, I, I was reminded of. Have you seen Paul Campbell's work on whether goalies qualify for the MVP or not, depending on like hitting these certain statistical thresholds?
1: I haven't seen that. I've, I've seen plenty of people arguing, you know, in, for example, with me specifically over, you know, whether letting goalies into the conversation just opens up a massive can of worms in terms of, you know, well, aren't goalies always the most valuable player, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what's the, uh, what's the, the Paul gamble thing?
0: Well, so uh, I've had those similar debates as well. Like, and, uh, every single team that just gets canned the way that the Jets would and whoever whatever goalie overperforms their circumstances would probably be every year's MVP. But basically he looked at historically what goalies have had to do to get into that ballpark. And a lot of times it's like, I think you have to have so many wins. I can't remember how many wins it was, but I think it was like right. 35 or above. And then like, if you, if you got 40 wins and you were really liable to get into the, into the ballpark of, of being an MVP candidate, but I think it was 30 goals saved above average. It was basically the minimum threshold. And I don't think that Hellebuck was there this year. He was, uh, he was lower down into the twenties. So he didn't consider him to be a viable MVP candidate the same way that price was when he won it.
1: Yeah. I think that's fair because I like the thing that you always see, you know, I like that. That sounds like a pretty good reflection of how, goalies would generally be thought of because you know in the case of hellebuck like hellebuck's case, really rests on using kind of more advanced goalie metrics like using above expected instead of above average uh to to filter for shot quality because you know like, like you said i think if when voters are kind of looking at stats to to enter a goalie into that uh heart conversation you know they're looking at kind of the traditional set of goalie stats which which like you said would include wins and and save percentage. And I think the goal saved above average would be kind of just a reflection of save percentage, times like playing like a heavy workload and facing a bunch of shots, which would also tie into kind of a traditional evaluation of a goalie. Uh, Because Hellebug played for such an awful team and specifically such an awful defensive team, his save percentage while strong was not nearly in line with kind of his like above expected performance, which was exceptional because the quality of shots that the Jets were exposing to, exposing him to on a night-to-night basis were just so exceptionally difficult compared to what a competitor like Tukarask was facing that his regular, his kind of what we call like conventional or traditional goalie stats were nearly as as uh, exceptional as they would be if he were looking at kind of more advanced, like above expected stats. So it doesn't surprise me that he didn't get the love. I'm just, I'm honestly, I'm happy that he got nominated for the Vesna at all, considering... You know, the Jets not being one of the better teams in the league. So I'll honestly take that and, and just consider him my private MVP.
0: Yeah, I ended up with him, I think, third or fourth on my fake MVP ballot. But uh, did you see clear sights? Uh, yeah. Their kind of goals saved above average metric. They basically put Markstrom and Hellebuck neck and neck as, as the top two in the league.
1: Yeah, I, th- th- there have been a lot of conversations uh, surrounding kind of that ranking that have been uh, running around. I won't, I won't run you through the whole thing just because it has been a point of contention. And, and obviously, as I'm sure you know, Vancouver Canucks fans are uh, very active on Twitter and very happy to inform you if, uh, if they think that you're underrepresenting one of their players in any way. Uh, in the case of the the Clear Sight thing, you know, I've I've kind of done an overview of all the public goalie models out there you know they're all almost universally aligned on on markstrom's performance this season saying that he was kind of the top 10 goalie in the league kind of in that 9 10 11 range uh the clear sight model obviously ranks in number one like you said um i've had conversations with people who are kind of straddle the the worlds of the proprietary and and public data out there and what they've kind of said about like specifically this this kind of ranking, is that those black box models, you know, they are going to be stronger than what's publicly out there because they can adjust for more factors. You know, there are certain variables that the public data doesn't include, that private data does, that would make them sharper, but that you should always kind of be a little bit hesitant if there's a model that's really going off the board, like really, really differing from what's publicly out there. And, and the clear model is, is a pretty huge outlier in that category so that does leave me a little bit skeptical about the kind of markstrom up there with uh with hellebuck take uh but i will say that there is definitely room for suggesting that maybe the amount of transition chances that the canucks allow does mean that the public models are underrating markstrom a bit i just i i still kind of based on those conversations and and just kind of looking over all the models out there I'm still pretty confident that Hellebuck was the one who kind of had to deal with the most and was able to make up for it the most of this play.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think Hellebuck was the best guy, but Markstrom definitely. The eye test put him more into the conversation than I think stuff like uh, goals saved above average did um, when, when I was looking into that stuff. But c- circling back to the Jets, so they've lost all this defensive talent. Can they fix that defense overnight?
1: Uh, I, I, I would definitely say they can't fix it. I, in that, I don't think that they can, you know, put together like a strong defense, like like one that you would say would be on the level of how it played a couple of years ago. Um, I think that at the same time, there are steps that they could take that would just make it less bad, which would be a pretty good way to make life easier for Hellebuck next year. And that just means kind of, you know, not doing or not making personnel decisions that are obviously not working. Like, don't put Lucas Spies in your lineup. Don't have Anthony Biteto playing regular minutes. You know, don't necessarily rush your young guys like Sammy Nuku up and then have get completely fed to the Wolves. You know, they have they made a good step by trading for uh, Dylan DeMello, who I think is one of the more underrated defensemen in the league. Uh, you, you know, talk about guys who uh, Toronto could use. He's, uh, he's proven his ability to play top-four caliber hockey in top four caliber minutes on really, really bad teams and managed to keep his numbers looking very good. So that pretty much sounds exactly to me like what the Jets need. He put up uh, very solid results. It's actually – it's kind of funny that in I think in like eight or nine games with the Jets this year, he actually, I think, finished like second or third on the team in, in uh, wins above replacement compared to guys who had been playing for them all year. So that's always a good sign. So if they can re-sign him, he's a UFA, then, I mean – You know, we talk about whether they can fix the defense. If they can re-sign him, I don't think there's a negligible chance that Dylan DeMello will be their best defenseman next year. So, you know, that doesn't seem like a particularly good sign, but they can at least stop the bleeding a little bit. And maybe, you know, instead of being like a bottom three defensive team, they can merely be like a, you know, bottom 10 or bottom 15 one.
0: Yeah. And that would make it maybe so that Hellebuck doesn't have to be a superhero again. I think DeMello, he didn't play a ton in the regular season for them, but I think in like eight or nine games, he was mostly paired with Nathan Boyle and they broke off like a 50% shot share, which on that team was like phenomenal. And it's just like, okay, yeah, this is, this is a guy like you, you've, you've got a solution here. Just thinking pie in the sky here. If Brian Little is forced into medical retirement, the Jets are sitting on 21 million in cap space in a summer where there's some legitimate number one defensemen on the market, and no one's got any cap space, so they could go bonkers. Like, I don't think, I don't know, it'd be really tough for them to draw someone to come sign in free agency in Winnipeg, but at the same time, they could be like, hey, Petrangelo, here's $10 million, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the tough thing, right, is that, you know,
1: like, Winnipeg kind of has to draft and develop their guys because it's, you know, and I have nothing against Winnipeg. Like my, my girlfriends from Winnipeg, I've been there plenty of times, big fan of their music scene, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's tough to get players there, and then the real risk that you run there, especially when you're trying to get defense, is that, you know, I was going to say, unless you get, like, the stud, but, like, Ethan back can sometimes back and often backfire, but, like... There's really nothing riskier than signing an unrestricted free agent uh, defenseman to a lot of money and a lot of terms. And especially if you're Winnipeg and you have to kind of pay that extra million or two million to get a guy into your jersey, you know, that could really end up biting them and, and actually make this job a little bit dif- more difficult than it started with. So, I mean, you know, Alex Bertrangelo, there's no surprise. You know, he's like one of the best defensemen in the league. If they could somehow convince him to to come over for, you know, 10 million or whatever, that might not look too good down the line, but I don't know if the Jets would really be in a position to say no to that. But uh, I think more likely they're probably just going to have to play it steady, draft a bunch of defensemen, hope that one of them kind of turns into a, uh, into a star for them or at least kind of a true caliber player and uh, you know, maybe put themselves in a position where they can build up some assets, maybe trade for a guy who has that kind of potential down the line and uh, it together but for now honestly I feel like they're just going to have to almost be like like the Leafs light a little bit like they're they're going to have to recognize that they're not going to fix that defense you know with a snap of the fingers and just put their defense in a position where at least it's not a massive liability and where their forwards can at least rely on not having goals going in on the other side and, and focus on you know, maybe improving their play and and their shot share overall.
0: Do you think they could take advantage of a predatory type of trade similar to how they gave up Armia to the Canadians to dump Mason's deal when they were trying to re-sign Paul Stastny in the summer of 2018? Could they jump on uh, a defenseman from a team that is trying to cut salary? Like just looking Edmonton Oilers, like Adam Larson could, potentially become available because they need to slash salary
1: yeah well i mean you know i personally i I would favor them doing that with jack johnson but i feel like that's probably (laughs) a my but uh (laughs) yeah you know i mean any team that has a lot of cap space and doesn't plan on spending at all is going to be in a pretty amazing position in terms of the amount that they're going to be able to uh coerce out of player out of teams that are you know having some trouble so, you know, theoretically like like and and that's one of the strengths of kind of keeping cast space open. And that's why I would caution them against kind of, you know, assuming that Petrangelo isn't an option, you know, making that real splash move for a guy like, you know, Brody or Gustafson or or, you know, maybe like one of those options uh in unrestricted free agency on defense and playing things a little bit more conservatively and just kind of seeing how far that cast space can take them because you know, if they do have that amount of flexibility, they might be able to retool this thing. And then by the time that they get kind of things back on track, theoretically, this team could still have the young talent to have another crack at this. So, you know, like we, we say that their window is closed, but I mean, this is really the time where they're really going to need to be smart about how they manage things moving forward. Make sure that they are in a position where they can take advantage of maybe some undervalued assets or, or. The, the fact of their cap space and uh, put themselves in a position where they could actually potentially compete again in
0: a few years, so don't do what Florida did and sign a washed up anton Strawman to five and a half million uh, yeah I, I I don't think anybody's
1: going to be doing what Florida did for uh, for a couple <laughs> of years at least in terms of the goalie. I feel like that's a cautionary tale that's going to stick around for a while
0: for sure. Um, we talked about the uh, number two centerman conundrum for the Columbus Blue Jackets. How about the number two centerman conundrum for the Winnipeg Jets? It seems like they have been trying to fill that at the trade deadline for the past three seasons and they still can't do it. So,
1: you know, again, you know, my, my, my theme with them is just kind of stay conservative and I honestly think that they're best off just going with the internal option. Just, you know, it might not be sexy, but just take Andrew Kopp, Give him that second line center spot, just at least temporarily. You know, he's not an incredibly talented player, but he is effective. Like he's, he's even on a team like the Jets, his underlying numbers were strong. He was one of the only good defensive players on that team this year, uh, and and he's kind of kept up that performance the past couple of years. I mean, he's been playing third line minutes and putting up second line results. He plays center. He's a hell of a lot more defensively responsible than anybody else who they're going to be putting on that second line or, or, I mean, in that top six overall, to be honest with you. So if you can put – if you could just say, okay, look, we're not going to do anything stupid in free agency. We're not going to, you know, re sign Cody Egan or anything stupid like that. Andrew Kopp, we're giving him the chance, you know. I mean, that would be a line that would have uh, Nick Ealers on it anyway, who is already the guy who carries the puck. So I don't really think that there would be too many issues going there. And then that would give them the flexibility to maybe, you know – take a more permanent run at something like this rather than, you know, doing what the Islanders did and giving up a first for Peugeot and then signing him to an insane extension. You know, I think the Jets have the ability to take this thing slow and deliberate if they want to. Uh, You know, I don't think anybody is really thinking that they're going to be a huge competitor next year. So they have some flexibility to uh, kick things down the can and maybe think a little bit more medium or long-term. So, you know, give Andrew Kopp the chance. If you can't do it, then acquire someone that you can plug in. And, you know, if you can, then that's great. You can focus on your defense instead of, uh, you know, trading for whoever the new, you know, rapidly declining Vegas Golden Knights players, like Paul Stastny or Cody Eakin or whoever will be next year. I'm sure like Ryan Reeves will be their acquisition for the second line center next year.
0: Oh, don't put that, that bad juju on them. Um, is Patrick Liney the star that he seems to fancy himself to be? Uh, I you know short answer is no. Uh,
1: the the longer answer is uh, he is definitely not a guy who you can rely on, you know, defensively or even offensively, which seems a little weird. But I, my my take on Liney is that like he's a shot, and it's a really good shot. And when the goals are going in, he looks really great. And everybody can talk about how he's this elite sniper. And when the goals aren't going in, he's a complete catastrophe. And everybody recognizes it like last year. Like the narratives around line A were so different this year compared to last year. And his underlying numbers, like his his profile analytically is like almost identical, which all that tells me is that last year the shots weren't going in. This year the shots went in. So you know I, like I, I really think the, like Lina is kind of a unique player in that regard where he can shoot the lights out uh, and that's kind of all that he can do. And you really can't like rely on him to do anything other than that. and if you are in that position, then you are really not going to have a good time. So like at the top level, he's a guy who will score you 30, 40 goals, whatever, uh, but you really can't count on him contributing anything other than that to your team. Uh, and I think something a little bit worrying about him is that I heard a lot of Winnipeg Jets fans saying that they thought that he had improved a lot defensively this year you know they're like, yeah, he's like trying so much harder out there like he's really making a difference and then you look at his defensive numbers like he even isolated from his teammates and they're actually like even a little bit worse this year than they were in 2019, which tells me that you know when when a star player or like a great offensive player has bad defensive numbers, you just kind of assume it's because they don't give a crap. Like, they're focusing on offense, they don't really care, they're not back-checking. You know, if Laine did give a crap, and his defensive numbers were this bad, then that just tells me that he's just a fundamentally bad defensive player, and there isn't really anything can do about it. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think he's a star. I think he's a really good shooter, and the Jets' fortunes offensively are basically going to be determined by whether he's hot or whether he's
0: cold. So his, his defensive play is a little bit like the, uh, the old Simpsons line. The, the lesson is never try. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if,
1: <laughs> if, if he, he took some of that uh, apparent defensive effort and, and focused it on like forechecking or keeping the cycle going or something like that, maybe he'd actually be a, a super effective player as opposed to just a, a pure goal scorer.
0: I think of him as a rich man's James Neal, but I'm wondering if he's just James Neal.
1: Well, I, I mean, the thing about James Neal is that he was always a very strong play driver. Like, if you kind of look back at his, his – when he was with the Penguins, you know, obviously he, he had the benefit of playing with Malkin. But I think even you look at some other years that he had, like in, uh, in Nashville uh, and in Vegas uh, especially, you know, his, play, his offensive play driving was always good. And that's like – that's the thing where, you know, I was on a Jets podcast recently and I was asked to think of a comparable to line A just to put him in context. And the real answer is that, like, there isn't really one. Like, like, line A is, he's just a shot. And, like, Neil, for all of his deficiencies, especially in terms of discipline, he was a guy who could be relied upon to, you know, forecheck or, you know, he could pass, like, things like that. Obviously, his strength was a shot, but it wasn't kind of the only thing that he could do. Whereas line A, if you're, like, other than his shot, like, you can just discard basically anything else about his game uh, in terms of the impact that he provides to Jets. So he really is like, I, I would describe him as a poor man's 2020 Alexander Ovechkin. Like he is like, he's not quite the goal scorer of Ovechkin, but he's kind of similar in terms of he's not really going to drive your scoring chances or, you know, certainly not contribute on defense in any productive way. The only difference is that Ovechkin is like the best goal scorer in the league and Patrick Liney, uh
0: has not yet reached that point. So he's, he's almost like a forward on the foosball table. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's um, a
1: very nice way of putting it.
0: So switching gears, uh, the Florida Panthers, is their window open or is it closed? They, they've
1: definitely done their best to uh, keep it as closed as possible. I, I mean, I, I don't really see a lot of upward mobility for this team. You know, we talked about like with the Jets, how keeping that flexibility open as much as possible was so important. And the Panthers have basically forcibly removed any possible flexibility that they could have moving forward. You know, like they're, they're even going to have difficult decisions to be made around the expansion draft. Like they might have to give up a good defenseman. Like they, they really have kind of screwed themselves as much as possible into turning what should be a very solid core into a just completely incoherent mess that you know, like, like you look at their forward group and and you just have absolutely no idea like what the point of it is. Like you have, you know, defensemen on the fourth line, you have like guys on AHL deals and like, you know, replacement level players on the first line. And, you know, like, like you're just kind of looking at it, trying to make sense of it. And you really just can't, I, I really don't have much faith in, in the Panthers to be competitive, at least until they can kind of figure out what they're doing. And, Start to put together maybe a bit of a coherent team building vision.
0: We're two years away from Alexander Barkov hitting unrestricted free agency. Do, do they have to completely blow this thing up? Because it's, I don't know if he's going to want to resign there.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, like if he's unrestricted, like that's like a Seth Jones situation. Like any team would want Barkov. And actually, it's a very similar situation because I have kind of similar type reservations about Barkov's defensive game specifically uh, compared to what his reputation is uh, but you know again that's that's neither here nor there compared considering we're talking about like his market value and, and the difficulty with which the Panthers are going to have to you know like they might have to do some major extractive surgery to even get themselves in the conversation for for retaining him so like as again like you know the number one center who had like he's you know his reputation is like Dubois plus plus. Like he is, you know, supposed to be like the the like a top five two way center in the NHL, and he's going to want to get paid like that. And I mean, we're talking about like, you know, John Tavares got eleven million dollars three years ago. You know, they might be talking about Barkov as like a twelve million dollar player by the time that contract rolls around, and. I mean, I don't know how the cat or the uh, Panthers are supposed to fit that into their plans without, you know, giving up multiple first-round picks in terms of like cap dumps.
0: Yeah, and I'm wondering if he's not starting to turn into this generation's Oliyokin. In terms of in terms of what? In terms of just never playing on a winner. Oh, I gotcha.
1: Yeah, I'm. You know, he's definitely he's definitely this generation's Oliyokin in terms of being wasted by the Florida Panthers, I think <laughs> about it. But, yeah, no, th- things are tough there. I-, I really have a difficult time, and it's especially kind of, you read those, like, expose articles about the decisions that Dale Talon made, and-, and especially kind of the progress that, that you know, the so-called computer boys made in terms of actually properly evaluating some players, but just the list of contracts on that team that are just regrettable, even aside from the obvious, like, the Bobrovsky, One is obviously like a catastrophe and probably will be considered one of the worst contracts of all time. You know, like you look at guys like Matheson and Strawman, who you mentioned, uh, Keith Yandel as well, just these guys on these massive long-term deals who are just providing really nothing of value to the Panthers. And like, they're in a real tough spot. They have some good players. Like McKenzie Weaker, I think, broke out this year in terms of uh, his play. Like he played those real like top-line caliber minutes and, and he thrived in them and they're probably going to be able to lock him up pretty cheap in RFA this year. But yeah, I I really don't know
0: what they're going to do. Yeah. Weeger was very impressive. You never see a, a righty righty defense combo. And yet he and Ekblad combined to, they were a positive possession force on a team that had absolutely none of that going for them. They were, they were a train wreck when those two weren't on the ice together. I I think a lot of that was Ekblad, but the fact that Uyghur was any amount of uh, effective on that pairing was uh, certainly a positive for them. Do you think you can even win under this ownership group? Like Vinny Viola, he's brought stability in the sense that no one's asking if this team has to move, but how many plans have they had since he bought the team in
1: 2013? Yeah, I've never been a huge fan of his just because I found the whole, like, you know, West Point thing a little bit nauseating. You know, like, we have to turn the Panthers into, like, the official team of the military. Like, I, you know, I found that pretty lame. But the, uh, in terms of the the vision of the team, I mean, you know, like I said, like, just, there isn't one. Like, Dave Talon or Dale Talon was just kind of flying by the seat of his pants. He had all this cap space. He, he wanted Joel Quenville, so he paid big for Joel Quenville. <laughs> Joel Quenville wanted a goalie, apparently, so he had to go buy him a goalie, which obviously runs counter to everything that, you know, any, like, you know, not even just analytical, but just common sense would say about how goaltending works in the NHL. Like, they pretty much just made every single mistake in the book. And now, how, you know, like, can you really trust, like, like, there's word that they're looking to cut costs and not spend up to the cap and everything like that. And you're wondering, like, how high the caliber of general manager they're going to bring in might be, which, you know, honestly, if it forces them to break out of the old boys club, it might actually not be the worst thing in the world. But I, I, again, if I was a Panthers fan, I I would really not be too optimistic about how things are going to go going forward. I would really just kind of enjoy watching Barkov at Huberdo while I can and just pray that things manage to sort themselves out.
0: Yeah. It it seems like whoever the new GM is going to be is going to kowtow to because he's the guy with the power now. Uh, he's, yeah. he's got Viola's ear, and it's just, I, I don't know. It just seems like they're going to be jumping to a new plan in a year, and it's hard not to believe in Quenville. He's I think he's only missed the playoffs once or twice in a 15-, 20-year career of coaching, and he's got multiple cup wins, but it's just, I, I don't know if, he, if you want to run back the – forever panthers strategy of having your coach also be the gm because they've done that a half dozen times and it's never worked yeah well again
1: you don't want to draw like too many parallels because obviously every coach is different but i mean you know you can kind of think about where the Leafs might be if they had given mike babcock control over their front office like if 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 joel quinville was part of the like a key part of the decision making process that brought in those unrestricted free agents last summer then I think there's reason to believe that his evaluation of talent in terms of who he would say that he wants in his lineup might be a little bit faulty and you know I mean we saw that he kind of pushed Vincent Trocek out of town last or during uh, at the trade deadline last year you know I'm sure that there will be other guys who he decides that have fallen out of his favor and he wants to do that so Honestly, just from a coherency perspective, it might honestly be better for them to just name him the general manager, but I'm sure it will just be some kind of awkward situation where they have a a guy in the front office who's just essentially answering to whatever Quindle wants and and just putting a public face on it, which is probably not the way to go. Mm
0: -hmm. It it sounds like the Trocheck deal was a bit of a culture move, as though the guys that they currently have just are used to being losers and they're used to things being easy and so those type of platitudes and they're just trying to clean house and start over. But the cap is so bogged down that you wonder if they even can. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know,
1: there's only, there's, there's a limited extent to which like a good attitude can get your team into the playoffs. And I think that the Santa's roster is pretty weak despite having some good pieces on it. Uh, I think it definitely projects to be even weaker considering what we now know about how Bobrovsky fit in there. And I'm sure that, you know, if Vincent Trocek was like pissing everybody off, like in practice or something, or like taking knees or whatever and not participating in drills, then sure. That's one thing. But if they just wanted to shake some things up and he fell out of favor with the coach, then I really don't think that that kind of move is going to pay massive dividends for them moving forward. I'm can, somehow get like a Blue Jackets level system and buy-in put in place.
0: When you kind of have to trust what Carolina has done, they've stolen players out of just about every team that's slowly pissing away talent uh, over the past few years. And, And Trocek is the latest example of that um if you can only keep one of their two big uh, ufa wingers are you keeping uh Didanov or hoffman uh to be quite honest with you i am letting both of those guys walk
1: i in, in hoffman's case i you know what i might have said that uh, earlier that that line a was uh was kind of without comparable but i feel like hoffman would be kind of as close as you can really get in terms of a guy who really is just kind of a shot and nothing else like Hoffman is good for a certain amount of goals. He's got a great, he's a great finisher, but uh, first of all, he's horrible defensively. He's not great shakes offensively anymore, even though he kind of used to be for a couple of years there with the Senators. Uh, and on top of that, they've been running their power play. Like, like I saw Michael Blake McCurdy uh, who does kind of heat maps in terms of like where shots are coming from. Uh, he's been kind of extolling this for a while is that the, The Panthers, for whatever reason, are kind of one of those teams that, like, runs their power play through a specific shot, Uh, like the, you know, like, obviously the Caps run theirs through Ovechkin, the Canadians run theirs through Weber, Uh, the Panthers do it through Hoffman, which pays dividends in terms of getting Hoffman a bunch of goals, but it does make your power play pretty, uh, pretty predictable, and pretty easy to shut down, so. Hoffman I would be perfectly fine to let go and, and some team that desperately needs goals will give him a decent long-term contract. And in Ddanov's case like he was excellent when he entered the NHL a couple of years ago and now he's like what 31 32 I'd say you just kind of let that's that's the exact kind of player that you let go and become somebody else's you know Kyle Poso or Franz Nielsen or you know one of those kinds of contracts. In my opinion, I think that there's space for them to let a few guys walk, let a couple dollars come off the cap and then kind of reassemble things from there and and make some maybe slightly more shrewd decisions or at least centric decisions than they've uh, had a tendency to make in the past couple of years.
0: It sounds bleak. And speaking of bleak, uh, we'll, we'll switch over to the Minnesota wild. I can barely say this with a straight face is their window open or closed. Uh, well, it's definitely
1: not open. Uh, I've, again, I don't know if it, was, if it was ever really open. They have – I mean, the Wild are kind of heartbreaking because they, they really just – they need a new goalie. Like that really – like they just have to fix the goaltending. Uh, and that's not all they have to do, certainly. Um, and I think that, that it's kind of been brought to my attention that, that maybe uh, the defensive stats are being a little bit overrated for the Wild. Uh, because uh, I, I've noticed in kind of going through their, their home and away numbers that uh, the scorekeeper in Minnesota, for whatever reason, is very conservative when it comes to guessing or is, like projecting where shots and scoring chances are coming from. So I think that the, the reputation that the Wild has been like this consistently incredible defensive team for like the past 15 years is probably maybe a little bit of a matter of kind of scorekeepers bias more than their play on the ice. But nonetheless, the they are definitely a better team than they have been on the, in the standings over the past couple of years. The main reason in my books is uh, Devin Dubnik, uh, and to a lesser extent, Alex Stalock. And I think that if they can just not have those guys playing all their games next year, they could potentially be a better team. And especially if they can you know, get Kaprizov in and, and maybe make some a couple of smart moves up front. But... Yeah, not a contender, certainly right now, but they do have some really good pieces. They have some really good defensive depth players for sure. And, uh, you know, I I honestly, I I think that they could be a surprise team to kind of make the playoffs and and potentially even win a round next year if, if Bill Guerin plays his cards right.
0: You you touched on a couple of things. i've I've talked about this on my podcast a, a number of times, especially with regard to I've been doing these uh, redrafting old drafts. And yeah. I, I came across a story where uh, the the old uh, the original wild GM Risebrow he was talking about how in their third year, when they made that push to the conference finals, they looked like a playoff team and they didn't know whether to push their chips in and go on a run or to pull back because they thought, no, we're peaking too early. They were not putting together all the pieces that we need to, in order to sustainably be competitive. And it just seems like they peaked a little bit too early. They go on that conference finals run and then it just, it, They've never been back since, and you yeah. wonder if it just didn't plague them to decades of mediocrity by winning too early, which is funny because Vegas makes the finals in their first year as an expansion franchise and it hasn't hurt them at all. Yeah, yeah, I like,
1: I, I really think that the Wild are a better team than people give them credit for. They're definitely. People talk about them as, you know, they, they make like the Minnesota mild jokes and everything that they're just kind of this eternally, this team that's eternally cursed to be mediocre. You know, they're a team that really would have deserved to get laughing air. Like, I don't think anybody would have been mad if they had uh, won the draft lottery. Um, but I think that they're kind of, I, I you kind of look at them and, and they really seem to me like maybe a like bizarro Western Conference version of the Blue Jackets, but just kind of without first of all, without the goaltending, and second of all, kind of without the the coach that kind of coherently brings everything together and, and kind of turns that team into a wrecking ball. Like, I like I think Bruce Boudreaux is an excellent coach, and he did a great job with them, and he's probably the best UFA coach out there, and I'm sure he'll get a big contract somewhere this summer. But uh, they never have kind of turned everything into being, you know, the potentially kind of suffocating defensive team that I think they have it in them could be and I think that's why I kind of say if Billy Garen plays his cards right like I think that there is room for the Wilds to do what the Jackets have done in terms of building a potentially a very strong team that gives teams fits without having that kind of top end offensive player and then you know if we want to keep the Jackets comparison going even longer I mean they have Kaprizov hopefully coming in next year or the year after that he could theoretically be their Panarin and be the guy who kind of potentially turns them into an actual contender. So, you know, we kind of talk about the Wild as a team that's kind of in that weird mushy area between contending and rebuilding. Uh, but they're kind of one of those teams where if they give themselves the flexibility and kind of quietly accumulate decent assets, decent young players, develop them properly, you know, we could theoretically be, talk- be talking about them as kind of a sneaky contender in a couple of years.
0: Yeah, I thought the best analogy for the Blue Jackets, uh, as currently constructed, was the Barry Trot's Nashville Predators. But certainly, I think uh, I think the Wild fit as well. And you touched on Kaprizov. Do you think he's more Dodonov or Panarin? I'm
1: I'm not much of a prospects guy. I've never actually seen him play before. I, I guess probably I'm sure I saw him at the World Juniors a couple of years ago and didn't really register it. Um, all indications that I've that I've heard about him is that he he should be reliably somewhere between the two. Um, I I the thing with, with Dodonov is that he in terms of like kind of his play in his first season, like he legitimately like came in and was like spectacular. Like he was like a like a, an excellent top line winger in his first year and then just kind of, you know, the age effects just kind of kicked in and, and you know, he was about at the age of where you expect a player to peak and then fall off, and that's exactly what he did. I think with uh with Kaprizov he'll be coming in at, at what age twenty four, twenty-five, something in that twenty three. Twenty three. So like he should be like that's like twenty three is your statistical prime and the top players can kind of keep at that level of play until like the end of their twenties. So I mean, that that sounds a lot more like Panarin to me than, than anything else. But obviously it's it, you know, we've been disappointed in the past with uh, with certain players who have kind of come in from Russia with an insane amount of hype, but you know if he really is kind of that big game player that he's supposed to be like you'll you'll be at the right age where he could theoretically like turn that franchise around if they can build kind of a foundation you know a strong defensive core which they already have a decent goalie in net not necessarily one that they pay Florida Panthers money for but a guy who at least they can rely on to not be the worst goalie in the league and you know a strong you know foundation of you know like a bottom nine or you know solid players that they already kind of have you know theoretically like whenever Kaprizov comes over this team could really surprise people I feel
0: well he's 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 signed so he's going to be playing uh, next season whenever that season happens and I think I think you're on the right track uh, somewhere in between the two maybe he's Dodonov just without wasting his best seasons in the KHL
1: yeah yeah that sounds about right I yeah I, I defer to guys like uh, like Dylan Griffin and and people who have kind of watched that a lot more Russian hockey than I am. The only Russian hockey I've watched is like when it's like nine o'clock in the morning in the middle of the summer, and my buddy just has it on in the background, and we kind of pick a random KHL team to cheer for and commit to them. So I am definitely not an authority on anything to do
0: with Russian hockey. Yeah, no, nor am I in, in prospects in general, I'm not always the best source, but I watched him at the World Juniors and he was a star in that tournament and in the Olympics, he was a star there as well. I just wonder right. if he isn't a little bit more of one of those guys who he needs to be playing with elite talent to really flourish rather than being the guy who uh, amplifies other talents. Well,
1: I guess, you know, that that will really be the question for the Wild, so the, their fingers will be crossed that he can do it on his own.
0: Uh, you've highlighted the goaltending a bunch. Is there a quick fix there? Like, is, is Kapo Kakanen the guy? I know you're not a prospects guy, but um, or is there anything um, they could do in free agency that would uh, change things for them overnight?
1: Well, there's a lot of goalies in free agency of kind of varying levels of, you know, again, you say varying levels of quality. Goaltending is such a crapshoot, and I have been kind of trying to shake myself out of that, mindset of uh, of making kind of qualitative statements about goalies when you know I know that for example, at the beginning of these playoffs I can say that the jackets are out of their minds for starting Corpusalo uh, instead of uh, Merzlikens. and then uh, of course Corpusalo ends up contradicting all of his results for the past three years and putting up in absolutely insane numbers so I've, i I keep learning my lesson on goalies uh, I mean there are stop gaps I think they could probably find if they just picked out of a hat two goalies who have, who are UFAs who have played NHL minutes in the past two seasons, they would be really hard pressed to find a worse tandem than Devin Dubnik and Alex Daylock So I think that's a good place to start. Uh, and then, I mean, you know, try it. again, like the, 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 the floor is so low right now that it, like, it's kind of like with the jets where I say they need to get players who aren't Lucas speeds and, and Batetto. Like, Uh, who I think I called Andrew Potato earlier on. I just realized, uh, Anthony Potato. But it's like a Jets situation. Like, even if they bring on, like, a replacement-level goalie, like, which is very easy to do. There's, um, like, dozens of them. Then they should see at least some improvement in the net compared to what they've gotten from Dubnik and Stalock. So, Kakinen might be the guy. They should give him every chance and uh, maybe find a backup to put behind him so they can uh, start a little bit fresh in that area.
0: See, I thought. Alex Daylock's picture came up when you Googled replacement level goalie, but maybe I'm
1: mistaken. Uh, at least this year, I, I believe it was like slightly re- below replacement level goalie.
0: Okay, but fair. I was, I was just kidding. Anyway.
1: Don't, uh, um, don't, 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 don't quote me on that though.
0: I'm not uh, n- definitely not the
1: world's foremost Alex Daylock uh, scholar. <laughs>
0: for sure. Um, there was a lot of buzz about a Parise for Andrew Ladd New York Islanders trade at the deadline that ultimately didn't happen. Is that something that uh, would be worth revisiting for them? Or is it even possible for the islanders now that the they're so tight to the cap?
1: Yeah, I mean like when when that was rumored, like that just seemed like an absolute win for the for the wild. And I'm not to say like like Parise is still a very good player. Like he has recovered to an ex- like from his, from the injuries that were plaguing him a couple of years ago. Like his play has recovered to an extent that I don't think it was fair to expect that it would. Like he is he is a legitimate NHL contributor. I'd say legitimate top six forward, uh, which I don't think anybody would have really expected after uh, the past couple years. Uh, Andrew Ladd is not that obviously. He is very bad. Uh, he's also super hurt. Uh, he played in the AHL a little bit this year. I uh, didn't get too much time in the NHL. Uh, purely from a cap perspective, I mean, yeah. I mean, you take Andrew Ladd's contract any day of the week over Zach Parise, it's just in terms of how many years are left, uh, how many cap dollars are available. But, again, li- like you said, I mean, the Islanders don't have the cap space to do anything. Like, they are so pressed up against the cap. And, like, I, I wrote about this a couple – months ago, like, they do not have the money to pay uh, uh, Kulak, Barzal, and Devin Teves. Like, Like, they are, like, something like $8 million short on the money that it would probably take to sign those three guys, let alone, like, adding an extra $2.5 million with, uh with Parise, uh, you know, on top of, obviously, not being able to uh, LTIR Andrew Ladd. So, I don't really see how the money works on that anymore. If I was the Wild and somebody brought it up to me, I mean, especially in a flat cap, you'd pretty much have to say yes.
0: And you talked about how Parise is kind of still effective and also how with the right kind of moves, these guys could become Blue Jackets West. Wouldn't trading Parise for Lad just be like the ultimate waving of the white flag? Uh, I mean, it depends. Like in any...
1: Regular situation, I feel like you, yes, it, it would be because you're trading away an effective contributor for, you know, nothing basically. Uh, I think that with with the extremity of Perisic's contract and his age and, and everything like that, uh, I feel like it's an easier argument to make. And I think that that Garen has kind of managed to skirt that line pretty effectively. Like he's obviously, like you said, like he's tried to make that trade. He traded Zucker for a pretty good return, like which is like a classic rebuilding move. Uh, but at the same time, like he extended Jared Spurgeon. Like I think he's clearly like trying to build this team to be competitive in the future, but he's being pretty pragmatic about kind of picking his battles and picking the guys that he's decided are kind of worth moving for strategic reasons. And I think that Parise would be kind of that situation where, you know, sure, he could be your... Columbus Blue Jackets West version of like Nick Felino or whatever. But in terms of freeing up some cap space, maybe giving yourself quite a bit more flexibility and kind of relieving your franchise of an obligation that's stretching for the next like whatever seven years or whatever, you know, I, I think that it's a pretty easy case to make for a fan base that really, really desperately wants something assembling or some semblance of consistent competitiveness that they just haven't ever gotten
0: their clock is ticking for Jonas Brodine he's a year away from unrestricted free agency the time to max out his value would have been at this past trade deadline is do you re-sign him now that he's going to be hitting that UFA status he's probably going to be looking for something not Spurgeon level but uh, probably pretty close is it can you afford to do that, or do you have to just kind of accept seventy five cents on the dollar this guy's going to be an unrestricted free agent? We don't get max value.
1: I think now is definitely the time they have to make a decision on him because like i like I'm very high on Brodeen, like I would consider him the league's best defensive defenseman. Uh, and what that means is that you know if there's space where he is not looking to be paid like the league's best defensive defenseman, uh, then you could take advantage of that and, and choose to resign him and then benefit from that because I don't think his game is one that's really primed to fall apart anytime soon. But at the same time, you can look at uh, at Marco Dwarvlasic and say, oh, crap, maybe we shouldn't count on defensive defensemen to just maintain their abilities until their late 30s. So, you know, I think it, it would obviously, as it always does, depend on the amount of money and the amount of term that he wants. Uh, If it's something that you don't feel that you can budget or you want to prioritize Matt Dumba instead or or what have you, then uh, I think that there'd probably be a very good market for him. I think teams like, you know, the Montreal Canadians that feel that they have a need to upgrade their left side would probably see him as a guy who could do that. Uh, Like you said, you know, 75 cents on a dollar is not what you want to get for a guy who's as good as Jonas Bordian. But I feel like you could make a very strong case for Brodine and I'm sure that teams' front offices would as well. That, like you were adding, like a proper uh, top-end defensive defenseman in a league where I feel like defensive play is going to be at even more of a premium than it was, you know, as recently as two years ago. Just based on kind of the teams that are excelling in the playoffs, and and teams that are kind of surprised, like teams with lower payrolls that are surprising, like that are doing better than I think they were expected to be. I feel like teams are going to be emphasizing or uh, emphasizing adding players who bring that kind of defensive portfolio. And that's exactly what Rodin does. So if there's a huge market and he's not in your future plans, like this summer, and I say summer, this winter, I guess, or whatever it's going to be, is definitely going to be the time to trade him. But uh, I, he's a very valuable player. And I think the Wild would miss him a lot. And that would definitely, in my estimation, push their can of compatibility far down the road if they decided to move him
0: yeah you're almost looking at starting to tank if you're if you're making some moves like that which wouldn't necessarily be the worst thing in the world they're they've got one of the older rosters in the league i I believe um yeah i don't know the off season it's going to be i think it's going to be like three frenetic weeks in the fall and it's going to be fantastic um especially yeah, a, coming off of what's been an amazing playoff so far. Okay. That is the logical position for us to uh, end the conversation kind of midstream. We, we continued on for what's going to be uh, the, the second half of this podcast series. We broke down the other five teams that uh, are eliminated at this uh, at this juncture when we had the conversation, the Edmonton Oilers, uh, as well as the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Chicago Blackhawks and the Nashville Predators. and I'm forgetting another team, but, uh, yeah, we talked about them in there. So look out for that in part two. Uh, but uh, as for this uh, episode, that's it. So thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to Jack. You can find him at JFreshHockey on Twitter. Uh, One of the uh, best reads that I have discovered in this pandemic. So uh, I love his work. Really, the inspiration for this podcast is uh, the postmortems that he did for a handful of teams uh, coming out of uh, their being eliminated in these playoffs. It's been a great playoffs, and I'm really excited about this stuff. So uh, I'm rambling. That's the episode. Thanks for tuning in, like, subscribe, review, wherever you get these, and uh, please share it with everyone. Okay, bye now.